Today we get to look at John 17. Uh, we continue looking here, and uh, it's, a, it's a great reminder even. I think the catechism this morning and even the reminder of uh, this passage that we get to look at today is just a reminder of the eternal hope that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. Um, there is something that is to be said about the way that Jesus prays for his people. And so if you would turn to John 17, uh, I'm going to read this for us. Today we will uh, look at this passage under the theme of the eternal unity that Christ has provided. So John 17, I'll be reading from the ESV. If you don't have a copy, we have some in the back. Uh, you can grab one. It's our gift to you. John 17 reads this. Would you hear now the word of God? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become 
perfectly one, so that the Father, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, I ask that in this time you would work in the hearts of every individual here, that you would bring encouragement for those that need it, and you would bring conviction for those who are in need of the reality of the Savior who came to free them from their sin. Once again, we lift up the hearts filled to you, knowing that what they are dealing with in this moment is often far too hard for words to express. So would you be with them, comfort them, allow us to be a source of strength as we point them to the realities of Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've spent the last two weeks looking at this remarkable prayer by Jesus Christ the night before his crucifixion. In our study, we have sought to understand the unity that Jesus came to deliver for his people when he entered the world at the first advent over 2,000 years ago. What we have seen so far is that the unity Jesus prayed for is an inherent unity present in all genuine Christians that is based on and in God-glorifying truth. It must glorify God, and it must be based in the truth of God's Word. Today, we focus on the eternal reality of the unity that Christ came to deliver. And my goal is to help us to see that true Christian unity is not temporal. Instead, we see that Jesus speaks of a unity that is eternally promised to all who are his. We will see three realities in this passage. Uh, the passage in a whole speaks of unity, but I want to double-click on a few uh, selected scriptures and highlight three realities, and I'll give them to you. One, we will see that we have an eternal Savior. Two, we will see that we have been eternally chosen. And last, we will see that we are eternally secure. So we have an eternal Savior, we have been eternally chosen, and we are eternally secure. Let's look first here at the eternal Savior. We see this here in verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1 with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son 
that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So this passage teaches that Jesus possesses an extraordinary ability. He possesses something that is far beyond our grasp, and that is the power to give eternal life. This raises the question, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us. In verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now listen, we need to get this right if we are to understand eternal unity. We have to understand what eternal life is because in order to understand the unity that we're promised, eternal life is something that is important to see. Eternal life is indeed a life that does not end. It's everlasting life. However, in the Bible, eternal life refers to more than just immortality. It's not just the fact that we will live forever. If you think back to the creation story, Adam and Eve were created in the possi- with the possibility of, of living forever. God placed them in a lush and beautiful garden. He said, as long as you don't eat of this tree, they had one rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will have blessings and you will have relationship. You will enjoy the fruits of your labor. Uh, Work will be uh, a joy to you. You will enjoy a perfect union, perfect fellowship with me and each other. Interestingly, we know that they did not obey the one rule, and we see that they did not immediately die physically. What happened? It was a spiritual death that was the immediate consequence of their sin. They were separated from that right relationship with God. And although they would die eventually, physically, They died a spiritual death on the day that they sinned. Their close relationship with God was broken. Uh, Enmity between one another uh, progressed. Uh, We saw sin enter the world, and unity was cursed. God cursed them. He banished them. He, He told them, you will now face a reality in the life that you are living that is not the way that was originally planned. It's a true life, eternal life that Jesus offers and that Jesus speaks of here means being restored to a relationship and communion with God. We will all die. There is a physical death. But what this means for us and what Jesus says is that we can enjoy creation and our role in it for the glory of God now. We we get to experience the blessings that come from Christ. 
the blessings of knowing God, being in right relationship with him as we wait for the life to come. Louis Burkhoff is helpful in his commentary and uh, theological work. He says, quote, a great deal of the difficulty encountered here is undoubtedly due to the fact that we think of eternity too much as an indefinite extension of time. God's eternity is no indefinitely extended time, but something essentially different of which we can form no conception. The point is this. Eternity is not just time. Eternal life is not just time. It is something we have now if we are in Christ. He came to offer eternal life now. In short, to summarize, eternal life here is not only a time or a reference to life after death. It is a quality of life for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. So this leads to an apparent observation. I mean, clearly we could see and we must know that only an eternal Savior can offer this eternal life. He must be eternal. And this is not a new development in John's gospel. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Meaning, he didn't have a beginning. He always existed within the triune Godhead. There's no beginning to Jesus. The Apostle Paul also reminds us of the eternality of Christ in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17 And he is before all things. He existed. He was there. And in him, all things hold together. See, Jesus also speaks of this as he continues to pray as we look here in verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is an eternal Savior. He's not bound by time. And his abilities are not limited to the constraints of this world. Jesus possesses limitless power because he alone is the sinless Savior. His relationship with the Trinitarian Godhead has always been perfectly united. It is an eternal reality that our finite minds cannot fully comprehend. We cannot grasp this fully. But what we can clearly see from this passage is that 
Jesus Christ was given the authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father gave to him. And this shows his role as an eternal Savior. So what what do we do? How do we respond to this eternal Savior? Well, our response to this must be worship and admiration for the person and work of Christ. Uh, We must, during this Advent season and beyond, we must point to the reality that Jesus Christ is eternal, that his incarnation was not the beginning of his existence. Rather, he existed and came to this earth, put on human flesh, bore the sins of man on the cross, and was raised to new life so that we can live eternally. And listen, we must also live in a way that reflects the reality of this eternal life that has been promised to us now. We've talked about this before, right? Too often we get caught up in looking at our situations, our circumstances, And while we grieve and we have sorrow and we feel pain and agony, we weep with those who weep. We do not live as those who have no hope. And the reason why we have hope is because we have an eternal Savior who has promised us eternal life. It is in him, church. May we exalt the name of Christ this Advent season and every season beyond. So all who have been given to this eternal Savior have eternal unity, so we must exercise it now. Next, we see that eternal unity is given to those who are eternally chosen. Look at verse 6 with me. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So quickly, we see here that there is a specific group of people. There is a body of believers that have been given to Jesus by the Father. This is a people different than those of the world. And it is to these people that Jesus revealed the truth about God. He goes on, if you look down to verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. So Jesus clearly states the focal point of this intercessory prayer, and that is the people who have been given to him by God. He has a people that he's praying for here. Now, we must not conclude that this means God does not love the world. We read that earlier, but we saw that that there is a love for the world, as we looked at John 3.16 a while back. 
But we know that the love that God has for the world and the love God has for his chosen people is different. It's a different type of love. Uh, This love is particular. Uh, There is preference expressed here. Uh, D.A. Carson is helpful, as he says in his commentary, quote, however wide is the love of God, however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there is a peculiar relationship of love, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, eschatological blessing, and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together and with the Godhead. A marriage illustrates this concept well. In a marriage, a man is given to a woman. Uh, This is why the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And in the marriage relationship, there is a certain love that is given to that spouse that is not distributed to the rest of the world. At least it shouldn't be. In biblical marriage, we see a commitment to that person. Uh, Particularly, we see Jesus as the groom, the church as the bride, and Jesus caring for his bride as he takes care of them, provides, protects, preserves them in all ways. Jesus cares for his people here. He prays for them whom has been given to him. He prays specifically for this bride that receives special affection, special attention that is not present between him and the rest of the world. They enter into this eternal unity that is eternally glorious. Look down at verse 10. He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So this teaches us that all that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son and vice versa. Uh, In the same way, the marriage illustration is helpful here. Uh, When a man and a woman get married, they become one flesh. Uh, It then becomes uh, ours, not mine. It becomes what yours is mine, what mine is yours. Genesis 2, 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Now, there is imperfect unity in marriage. Amen? We display imperfections to one another. But let not that thwart your view of the perfect unity in the Godhead. There is perfect Trinitarian love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's never been thwarted. There's never been disunity. 
There's never been tension. We've seen this displayed over and over in this passage. And what this tells us is that when we are saved, when we are chosen out of the world, we are then lifted up into this perfect unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. He says, you've given them to me. What's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. So they are ours. Brothers and sisters, you are not just loved by God the Father. You are not just loved by God the Son. You are not just loved by God the Spirit. You were loved by the the Trinity, the triune God, who existed in perfect love, perfect unity, before anything was created. You were lifted up into that love, brothers and sisters. He goes on. He says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Look at this language. Jesus knows his time on earth is coming to an end, but his disciples will remain. And while they do, Jesus prays that the Father will keep them. Look at that word, that he will keep them. So they will be one like the Father and the Son. In other words... Jesus is asking God to ensure all that were eternally chosen are eternally kept. Keep them, he says. Look at me. You are being kept for Christ. This is not based on your own keepings. He will hold me fast, amen? He will keep us. He will hold us in his hand. It is not based on our works. It is based on his work. I mean, this is the prayer that Jesus Christ prayed for you. The basis of his request is his obedience, not yours. Look at what he says. The basis on his request is back in 12 and 13. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So those who were given were kept and guarded while Jesus was with them. He did the work then. Note that Jesus is not afraid to talk about Judas the betrayer here. In fact, he says that what Judas did was necessarily purposed by God so the scripture would be fulfilled. Don't get it reversed. 
Judas, the scripture isn't fulfilled so Judas can do what he wants. Judas was purposed so that the scripture is fulfilled. Now, attentive readers, and which most of you are, will note here that Jesus is speaking about the disciples. And I told you on the onset of this series that Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples. But remember, it's not just these disciples that he prays for. Put your eyes down on verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the disciples here. I'm not just talking about these 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Church, this is a prayer for you. He is talking about all that would believe based on the apostles' ministry, which primarily came from the preaching and writing of the word. Remember, we talked about this last week. The word of God has been given to us in order to ensure that this can happen. The Holy Spirit works, but he works through the proclamation of the gospel, which means we must be tellers of the gospel. We must be proclaimers of the gospel. We must herald the truth of the gospel. We must ensure that we never lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. He prayed for us then, but he didn't stop. He doesn't stop mediating and praying for us. 1 John 2, 1, the same writer in his epistle says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So he wants us not to sin, right? We all, or at least we should, want not to sin. We do not sin joyfully. We should see sorrows in our sin. And he goes on, he says, but if anyone does sin, so we will sin. We will struggle. There is no perfection on this side of eternity. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Listen, that is good news, that it's his righteousness and it's not ours. Hebrews 7.25 also reminds us, consequently, he, Jesus Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always and listen to me, always lives to make intercession for them. So this is good news to believers and good news to unbelievers. Jesus is alive. Amen? He is alive. 
And what Hebrews 7.25 tells us is that he is making intercession for those who call upon his name. So believer, if that's you, when you sin, when you struggle, when you see all of the hardships in this world, you can trust that you can pray to God and that Christ is interceding on your behalf. And it's through the power of the Spirit and work. If you are not a believer, the offer of salvation is available to you today. Today is the day for salvation. Repent. Believe. Trust. Obey. He is the only hope you have in life and death, friend. He is offering today this intercession on behalf of you and God. If you are not right with Christ, you are not right with God. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no hope. There is no love. If you do not know all of those things through Christ, you are at war with God. You are at enmity with your creator. And you will one day stand face to face with him, giving an account for all of your deeds. And if you do not wear the robe of righteousness in Christ, you stand no chance. Trust in him today. Trust in the work of Christ. But if you are a Christian, may you take hope. May you fix your eyes on the eternal unity you have, not just with one another, but with God. Eternally secure, as we now see in our third point. Look down at verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen, if there is a more promising and encouraging passage in Scripture, I have yet found it. Think about what is being said here. We see God the Son asking God the Father to deliver his people to him to see the glory given to him before the foundations of the world, before anything was created, the preexistence of Christ. And we will be brought into that glory. Now, we must note that Jesus' prayer requests are not like our prayer requests. It's not a hopeful wanting of something. Uh, this is a secured reality 
And he bases his petition in his obedience. Look back to verses 12 and 13. What does he say there? It is I have done the work you have given me to do. I've accomplished all that you have commanded of me. Jesus faithfully obeyed. He endured the wrath. We'll see in the weeks ahead, Lord willing, that, I mean, he prayed, if there be another way, let it happen. But yet, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, it's not based on any other reality other than the reality of Christ's work for us. So he says, I want them to to be with me. I want them to see my glory. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 29 through 30, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's just being chosen. We were chosen to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Meaning he's going to raise Christ so that we too can be raised. And then he says in verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Meaning you've been declared righteous. You've been set apart, justified, uh, court documentation, not guilty. They're mine. There is no more case against them. My people, signed, sealed, delivered. And he says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, beloved bride of Christ, you will be glorified. Ultimately, finally, and it's all because of Christ's work for his people. His people can have true hope of being eternally secure. We have the hope of this future glorification with Christ. In other words, Christ's exaltation secures this request. We know that this is delivered because Christ was delivered. Listen, we cannot fully comprehend the magnitude of this petition, but we can be sure that our best thoughts fall significantly short of the profundity of Jesus' words here. We're not going to grasp the realities of the glory that will be seen when we are with our Savior. J.C. Ryle is helpful here as he says, the full nature of the future state is wisely hidden from us. It is enough for believers to know that they will be with Christ. It is company and not place which makes up true happiness. 
We've said this before, but it is Christ, it is God who is our reward. All of the other benefits are all secondary. If Christ is not your hope, if eternity with God is not your desire, then you do not understand the full grasp of what the Bible teaches about eternity. We don't know it all, but we do know a few things. One, we know that we will be perfected. Ephesians 1, Paul writes, and he says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And here's that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we will be holy, blameless, perfected. We will not be made gods, but we will be like him. We also know from Revelation 21 that the world will be perfected. Says John writing here, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Him, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Oh, church, what beauty. What hope. What eternal security we have in Christ. And it's all because of him. It's all because of his work. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I remember a few years back, maybe about five years ago now, when I was pastoring at a church and we had done a revitalization with another church that had a lot of older members. And there were, I did my, my first funeral at that church after being in ministry for about five years already. And uh, there was a man named Willie Bibb, and if you were at College Hill, you remember Willie Bibb, and he was a, a saint that was just, uh, just full of encouragement and joy, and I mean, he, he never had a, anything bad to say about anyone. And I remember sitting on his, beside him at his deathbed, and I remember just reading some psalms for him, and I remember coming to this passage and just reminding him that 
Christ had prayed for him and that he was entering into glory, that his final breath here was promised to, to see the glory of Christ, an entryway to the glory of his Savior because of what Christ had accomplished, because of what Christ had promised him. And I remember we read through this passage, and in his weak voice, he said, read it again, Pastor. What a joy. What a joy to rest on eternal hope that we will be with our Savior. What a joy to know that we can rest on eternal hope that those that we have lost will be with him forever. If they are in Christ, and I trust, and that's a longer conversation, a sermon for another day, but I trust that the scripture teaches that, that babies, of those that have been aborted, those that have been lost in miscarriage, I believe that they are with our Savior. I believe they are saved. I believe they are with him so let us trust that we have eternal hope. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones dealt with a misconception of unity in his day when the majority of church leaders were perpetuating an ecumenical unity that disregarded the fundamental doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks, and we, we must remember here as we look now that this is the unity that Jesus prays for. And summing up this passage, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, quote, Our Lord is praying here that this unity which he has brought into being and which he has himself preserved while he was still with the disciples may be continued. So we find here that the whole of our Lord's statement is not an exhortation to, for us to do anything, but is a prayer to his Father asking him to preserve this unity that is already in existence. End quote. Beloved, we have eternal unity. We have eternal unity with Christ. We have eternal unity with each other. So what do we do? We live like it. We talk like it. We give praise and glory to the creator, to our Savior, who secured us, who chose us, and who has called us to eternal glory that we can barely comprehend. My prayer is that during this Advent season and every season beyond, that we will look to Christ, that we will have a body of believers that are truly unified with one another. We don't let preferences or just minor details distract us from the main thing. We aren't always going to agree on every single detail. We're not always going to get along. As Matt Combs prayed 
we're going to have differences. And sanctification is worked out in the body of Christ. He uses the rub of dealing with difficulties to make us, to conform us into the image of our Christ. So we must be united to one another. But we must not base our unity on something external. We base our unity on what Christ has accomplished for us. It's there. Just as you were born into a family, and I tell my kids often, they're your siblings, you have to deal with them. Work it out. We, too, have been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been called into the family of God. It's not our doing. It's his. May we, too, live like those so the world may see that he is a great God, great Savior, and one that is mighty to save. I'm going to give us a moment to reflect and pause and just think about whatever the implications of this passage is to your own life. Or maybe for you, you need to get right with the Lord today. I encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, maybe for some, you've been, uh, you are not walking in an eternal unity uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, maybe there's something that is holding you back from being fully united as Christ has called us to be here. And so I ask you to just pray. Ask the Lord to work in your heart. The band's going to make their way back to the stage, and they'll lead us in a closing song. And, but before they do, um, I will pray for us here in a moment after you have a moment to reflect, and we will sing holy, holy, holy. So take a moment and think on the words that have been spoken.